welcome to The Mary Mack Show, where we will be talking about your feelings, experiences, and pain following the death of a loved one. Hello, my friends, my warriors. This is Mary Mack of the Mary Mack Show. And we're in part two of a phenomenal conversation with Dan Schneider. He is based out of the New Orleans area of uh, Louisiana. What is the name of your parish, St. Bernard? I'm uh, in St. Tammany Parish in a little town called Mandeville. Oh, which is which is about an hour from where my story originated and where we lived when my son uh, uh, died. Gotcha. Okay. And, and I have the privilege of doing episode two now, because in episode one, which you saw, um, we talked about his son, Danny's death and how young he was. He was only 22 and he was murdered by a drug dealer and all that transpired from that one moment. And so go back if you haven't already and watch that episode, you'll learn a lot about how Dan became a detective to solve his own son's case. And tonight we're going to go into episode two to talk about how he's a pharmacist by trade. And he started to see how there was a real explosion of Oxycontin prescriptions that were coming in to his pharmacist and how the young people were just being destroyed from it. And so in this episode, we talk about that and we talk about how it moved into learning about the pharma pharmaceutical company called Purdue Pharma, which is responsible for all of these deaths and addictions. And so I thank you again, Dan, for being with us. I want everybody to know that um, the it says the pharmacist on the top of his hat, and that's because not only is he one, but there is a Netflix documentary, a four-part documentary I want you to go watch, um, also called The Pharmacist, that will give you immense information on what's going on right now with... Um, not only what happened with his son's murder, but also now what's going on with this case. And on December 4th, on a Monday, very early in the morning, the Supreme Court of the United States will be hearing a case against the owners of Purdue Pharma, which is the Sackler family. And this is a major, major case. And if you're in the area, we're asking you to please go and show up and support people who have gone through this. And if you yourself have gone through this, please be there. So thank you, Dan, for episode two, so that we can learn all about the unfortunate Oxycontin um, debacle and how it's affected so many families. Well, yes, and, and I want to pick up where we kind of left off. And again, we had the miraculous solving of our son's murder, 
And a lot of people ask me at that point in time, well, I mean, now, do you feel closure? Ah. Yeah, I, I, actually, we didn't really feel closure, so to speak. It, it was a relief to get a measure of justice, okay? But then the reality really hit us in the face that Danny wasn't coming back. And I, and I guess we knew that the whole time, but we did have a little period of time where we were a little more focused on grieving. Yes. Uh, it, it, it was fairly short-lived, though, because of, you know, my dreaming while I was solving my son's murder, I was dreaming of what I could do to prevent this from happening to other families. Okay. So, you know, this, I, I talked in the first episode about maybe God being involved or karma or luck or whatever you think it is, uh, unusual circumstances that have come together uh, for us to solve the murder. But also the next unusual thing that happens, there's a, a few other unusual happens that for me to go into second part of my mission. We come home on the day my son's killer is sentenced, and they lead him away in shackles in the orange jumpsuit, okay? And he's going to go away from prison for up to 15 years, 85% uh, mandatory, okay? Mm -hmm. We go home, and we get home, and the very machine that I usually recorded on, uh, on a lot of my investigations, okay, it's also an answer machine, and it's beeping. We have been left a message. Okay. Uh, when I listen to that message, it's my son's English teacher, and Red Ribbon Week is coming up, and he would like me to come to his school and to try to talk to kids about the issue and to see if we could save lives. Wow. What's Red Ribbon Week? Red Ribbon Week is a week every year that's dedicated. There was a DE agent years ago that was murdered. Oh, and People did this on his behalf, and it's not much so talking about his murder, but it's talking about kids on that particular week about the dangers of drug use and why you shouldn't do drug use. And it's been something that's been going on for years. So in any event, I have always prayed for this moment where I got justice and I could go on this mission, but my wife had already said, we need a break. Yes. And we were trying to start to grieve, Okay. And so when I got this call, it was like a mixed blessing. It, it was like, geez, how does this happen? And he, <laughs> he, he calls and he says something like, well, I don't know where your son's case is right now. Okay. But, you know, I'm, I'm hoping maybe the time ain't ready. Okay. And so that's okay if it's not. But we really would like you to come and talk to school. You might be able to help these other kids. Okay. And so sure enough, that hits me right in the eyes. But I just came home for solving my son's birthday. We want a break. Right. So I reluctantly pray with my wife and 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 and, and we think about it. And I say, well, you know what? Maybe, maybe God is saying you gotta go to work. If you don't go to work, maybe you lose the the fortitude, so mm -hmm. to speak. Or the momentum. The momentum. And I thought that because it happened, coincidentally, I almost thought it was destined. Yes, yes, yes. Because what's the chances of it coming in that exact day? Almost nil. Like everything else in this story, almost yes. nil. So I, I, said, <laughs> I took that and said, well, then I guess I ought to do this. Mm -hmm. And I put myself out a week and I spoke before the, the kids in school and, it, and, and the, the news media came in. And I mean, it, it really went over. We affected a lot of the kids. I spoke about Danny's loss and about the dangers of drugs, but I also talked about friends telling on friends and that his friends knew about it. They had, they dropped me an anonymous note 
after that, some of the kids were interviewed and said, you know what, I never would have thought about maybe reporting one of my friends that was doing drugs, but I would consider it now. Yeah. Now, I don't know if it really stuck with him, but it hit home. And, and, and other crazy things happened. We went into like the local Walmart the, the next day or something, and everybody was talking, coming up to us and saying, God, we need more people doing what you're doing. So everything was reinforcing that you've got to go out and do this. Mm -hmm. Of course, I had something troubling going on. I wanted to dedicate my time to that, but I had a situation taking place in my drugstore, which I had kind of been ignoring. And it was kids coming in with Oxycontin prescriptions, high power. And this was a different crowd than I was used to seeing. Most of the people that used to come in with pain medications, they came in with limping or crutches. Or, and they were kind of middle-aged to, to uh, upper age, okay? Mm -hmm. And they had been taking pain medication for years, okay? Now I'm seeing 18, 19, 22-year-olds. A lot of these kids remind me of my son. And even though a lot of people like to think, well, I went on this rampage about opioids because my son died from opioids. Well, my son didn't die from opioids. In fact, he was murdered, okay? But he was attempted to buy drugs, and I, I do say he died because of addiction, okay? All right? And, and so, in any event, I see these kids becoming addicted. It's crazy, but I even started seeing some of them die, and I had went to school with their parents, and so I had this happening in front of me, and I said, well, wait a second, you know, I, God, I didn't take this mission on to investigate doctors mm -hmm. or to go out in, in the world. I, I took this on to go talk in schools and such and such. So I didn't really, I grappled with this, this situation, but it was in my face, and it, it got to be where I started thinking, well, if nobody's going to do this, maybe I got to do it. Maybe again, I'm in the right place at the right time. My wife would have said the wrong place at the wrong time. <laughs> you know, I even talked about leaving pharmacy because the only way I was going to get away from this was I wasn't going to be able to work in a drugstore. But then I'd had to change careers. And then I also started feeling an obligation. But even still, she begged me, okay? And she had many times asked me to quit when I was going along. And I don't want to take her away from it because she also supported me. And there were times that she pushed me, but there were also times she wanted me to give up. She was afraid I was going to die looking for my son's killer. Sure. And so in any event, she now doesn't want me to. So I want to try to honor that, honor that promise to her. So I don't want to really get involved. And something funny happened down here in New Orleans. We had a football team called the Saints. Okay. Yes. They the Saints, and they weren't really doing real well, but they finally won a playoff game and they were going to play in Minnesota. And so I said, well, you know what? We're going to take a week off. We're going to travel to Minnesota. We're going to do some vacation. We're going to watch the game. And I got to admit, I had a little almost air of cockiness about myself. Maybe it's not cockiness, but I had to add that things were going my way and that, you know, I couldn't fail at what I was doing because, I mean, I saw this incredible murder. I got some measure of justice. Nobody thought I could do this. And so I even started thinking this was going to carry over. The Saints were going to win this game and they were going to go to the Super Bowl. <laughs> that was another crazy part of this story okay but in any event we had another situation we had a, a a friend that lived in Vanderbilt which is where we live now but then we didn't live there we lived in St. Bernard Parish where, the, the, where my, we raised my son and uh, she had a son in Chicago who had cancer of the jaw okay? uh. she wanted to visit him and she had made a couple flights there but she really couldn't afford another flight in, and she really wanted to see him and they thought that maybe this cancer wasn't really going to be cured, that it could also 
maybe possibly be fatal. So she said, well, can I come with y'all? Y'all drop me off in Chicago, and y'all go to Minnesota, y'all watch the game, and come back and pick me up. And we knew her son, who knew my son pretty well. They had grown up together. Aww. So there was a commonality there. So anyway, her name is Debbie. She's in the documentary, okay? And sure enough, we pick up, and we go to Minnesota, and we drive there. Okay? And we go to the Mall of Americas, and there's this beautiful video camera, and it's the newest and the latest greatest. We had a big flunker at one time, okay? Yeah. It was about that. It was uh, outdated. And it's like $1,500. And 20 years ago, $1,500 was a lot of money, like, like $5,000 today, okay? But, you know, I'm feeling my oats. I, I, you know, I want to have this. I, I want to film this nice vacation. I want to film the, the Saints winning the ball game. You know, I want to start a new life with, with, with the rest of my family. I'm trying to move forward. So I buy the video camera, and again, my wife's complaining about the money. I said, well, don't worry about the money. We'll find a way, okay? And so we buy the video camera. Now, so we go to the Saints game, okay, and they get the ass kicked. Okay, so, <laughs> so my, my dreams of everything going my way are, are, are not always going my way. Okay? <laughs> On the way back, we stop in Chicago. Well, by the way, we do video the headwaters of the river. We video the, the, the fish that they catch up there. We go to nice restaurants. We we video some snow up there because we never see snow in Louisiana. Uh, we video Amish people, okay? We video some of the Saints game, even though they lose, okay? So we, <laughs> overall, we are accomplishing uh, getting a break, so to speak, okay? And... Uh, so we pick up Hus. Uh, we go to Chicago. We pick her up. We go out to dinner with her son. He sips uh, soup through a spoon, uh, through a straw, because he can't open his jaw. Okay. But we That's have a so nice. Sad. We have a nice little meeting with him. Okay. And uh, then we're on our way home. And it's we we're gonna drive home. I think the same day or in a day and a half. It's about a twenty some odd hour drive. Okay. That's a lot. And we leave like early in the morning. And Debbie's sitting in the front seat. My daughter. And Christy and my wife Annie are sitting in the back seat, and obviously, just a little ways down the road, they're sleeping. But Debbie's sitting next to me, and she's trying to keep me awake. But we're talking, and I'm telling her about this doctor, okay, and this drug OxyContin, and how it's killing kids, and how I'd like to get involved, but I kind of don't want to get involved. And I really want to spend more time talking in schools, and and Annie doesn't really want me to do this. And and honestly, if I do this, there's also going to be some risk involved, okay. Uh, you know, there was a cottage industry of pills. I mean, some of these people are desperate to get their pills. And if you have shut the doctor down that can't get the pills, uh, these people are going to come after you, which later on, when I do get involved, they do come after me. Okay. And, you know, we had to have police come to our drugstore at night sometime because there were threats on us. Okay. So, I, I, and, and I didn't even know for sure that that was going to happen, but I assumed there was some risk. And I wasn't sure I was willing to take the risk. So I told Debbie, I said, Debbie, Debbie says, Dan, you're going to shut her down. And I said, well, Debbie, I said, that's easy for you to say. I said, but, you know, there's a lot of risk involved. I, I, got, I got to think about this, okay, before I get totally involved in this. And she simply says, I'm sorry, you're going to shut her down. And I said, you know what? I made a deal with God. My deal with God was if I could get justice for my son and nobody get hurt, then I would go on a mission. But I define the mission as talking in schools and talking to parents and talking to kids, not investigating doctors. And I said, Debbie, if I was going to change this mission and go after the doctor, I'd need a direct sign from God. 
Now, it, at this time, I'm all into God. You know, I'm, I'm trusting him. Things have worked out. And I'm, I'm believing that I'm communicating with him. Yeah. You know, for the audience out there, maybe some people believe, maybe she don't. Sometimes I believe, sometimes I don't. Okay. Yeah. But at this moment, I'm kind of believing this. Okay? Immediately out the windshield of the car, it cross forms. Specifically, when I ask for a sign, a cross forms out the windshield of the car. Now, I know that's a physical explanation for this. It was early in the morning. There was some like little snow flurries. Okay, we're going. And there must have been some reflection of the light or the cloud. I don't know what the hell it was. Okay. Right. But it's unbelievable that this occurs specifically when I ask for it. And what exactly happened? So did you see like snow in the form of a cross or what happened? I see uh, like a bead of sunlight that forms the uh, uh, straight line and then a cross line, and it looks like a cross. And there Debbie sees it too? Does Debbie hang see on, it too? Hang on, hang on. <laughs> I, by the way, now, you don't know Debbie. Debbie would probably believe this. Me, I think I'm hallucinating. I, I really believe, you know, I, I've lost it. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I ask this and I see this, and I'm saying, Debbie, do you see what I see? She says, Yes, now I see a cross. Well, she's kind of a clairvoyant type of person in a way, you know, and I'm not, I'm yeah. a doubter. So, okay, <laughs> I think to myself, they're pretty quick. I said, my wife and my daughter are not going to believe this. I can tell, I can see me telling my wife, look, I got to go on this mission now because God said gave me a cross. <laughs> you can say, you got a picture of it? It wasn't smart enough to try to get my video camera working or take a picture of it. We didn't have iPhones that could take pictures and stuff like no, that. No, we, we had none of that. But I'll tell you what I did do. We kept our mouth shut and we woke them up. And we asked my daughter and my wife, I want you to look out the front windshield of the car and what do you see? And they said, we see a cross. <gasps> oh, that's so good. It's unbelievable almost okay and it's it's really you know you can almost make this story into almost a religious story and i i wanted to go beyond an audience of that i don't want it to be i want to think that god was involved i'd like some people to believe that but the truth is there's a lot of hard work and maybe luck and and, and whatever caused this to happen i don't know but at that moment i knew that i had to go on that mission okay I wasn't sure, and I thought I had my wife on my side, but I wasn't sure. And let me tell you the next interesting part of this thing is we drive all night, we get home. We drop my daughter, we drop Debbie off in Mandeville. About an hour later, we, we stop at my house. It's two o'clock in the morning. Oh my we goodness. Put, we put my daughter to bed, and I say, you know what? I got this new video camera. I've been told that this doctor is open in the middle of the night, two o'clock in the morning, and there are hundreds of people. Now, I've heard this story from patients. I really don't believe it. I think they exaggerate. They embellish it. Words, I do believe she's a bad actor, okay? But I don't believe she could possibly, it could possibly be this obvious that she'd still be operating, that somebody would have stopped her already if, if two o'clock in the morning they got hundreds of people out there. And this is yeah. every week. Something's got to happen. So Never I heard said, of a doctor operating at those hours. It's crazy, but later we would find out she never was open in the daily. She only opened that night. When the sun went down and when it when it rose, she stopped working. Wow. Like a like a bat or an owl or something, a vampire. Okay. Yeah, like a vampire vampire hours. I guess she thought that caused less 
unless normal people saw that, they were all in bed sleeping, okay? But, you know, the authorities surely saw it. But anyway, long story short, so I tell my wife I'm going. She says, I'm going with you. Mm. Talk about a change. Talk about a cross have something to do with this. Yes. She goes with me, and believe it or not, in the documentary, you see me and her video, and you hear her voice. Yes. And she's helping me video these people in the middle of the night. And we see two New Orleans police officers on the porch. That's what's amazing to me, how they were in cahoots. And, and I had just had trouble with the New Orleans Police Department. So now, my God, you know, it's like, it, it's just it's just unbelievable. So any event, even still, I captured that video. I'm on a mission, but I still don't, I'm still kind of holding back a little bit, okay? I, I, I make some phone calls to the authorities, and I report her. I even sent a letter to the medical board to report her. Well, I get very little response. It's very, very limp. Almost like when I tried to solve my son's murder, I got very little response, okay? Eventually, I would get resistance for what I was doing and told I shouldn't be doing what I'm doing, much like what happened in my son's case. Mm -hmm. I, this, was, this was a repeat of what I had just went through, yep. but I was ready for it. God had made me ready, or the circumstance had me ready. I knew he, steeled, I he steeled your spine to do this. He did. He absolutely did. So, so in any event, uh, after that, something else happens. And again, this is a real mystery. All this almost happened at the same time, almost identical time. Prior to, just like a month before we went on that trip to Minnesota, and this is between the time my son's case is resolved, I have spoken at two schools already. I'm already on that mission, okay? And I'm reluctantly thinking about doing this, Okay. A girl comes into my drugstore. Her name is, uh, oh, geez, I don't know why I'm dropping her name right now, but uh, it's in the documentary. It, it might come to me, but this old brain sometimes can't recall every memory. She, <laughs> she comes in to pick up a prescription for OxyContin. And she's young and vivacious looking, okay? And and and, uh, and there's, a, there's an issue going on because my boss has half filled the prescription. Now, I, I, at that time, would never, ever half-fill a prescription because it was kind of known that when you half-fill a prescription, what they're trying to do now is they're they trying to get that. They sell those pills, okay? Now, that doesn't always the case. It could be that she just couldn't afford it and she only wanted half. Mm -hmm. But most bosses are skeptical. When I was skeptical. My boss was less skeptical. Now, some people say he was greedy. But you got to know this guy. I don't think he was really greedy. I think he was giving a girl the benefit of the doubt. Okay. I wish he had no, because when I went and talked to her, I could see in a minute this girl didn't need it. I asked a question. I said, well, what kind of pain do you have? And, you know, have you had an MRI? Have, do you have some kind of medical records? She had none of that. And I said, you know, but, but unfortunately, so I warned her as best I could, but I had to give her the other half of the prescription because you can't half fill a prescription. I, it, we'd, have, we'd have left it hanging. Okay. While we're going on that trip, Okay. And I come back now, refreshed, getting ready to do this, videotaping a doctor. She overdoses and dies. Oh my God. Now I think, my God, she might have died from the pills that I let her have, which I didn't originally fill it, but I had to handle the second half of the pills. So now I also feel unusually guilty, complicit. It's almost like I don't know if I can keep doing this, you know, because. I didn't turn everybody down. You know, right. I tried to get 
people to benefit a doubt. Some people you can't cut them off right away. And you know, back then there wasn't a lot of treatment out there. And so, you know, there was sometimes I'll turn people down, but there's lots of times I gave them the benefit of the doubt. Okay. But now I'm questioning almost every prescription I'm feeling. Is a person gonna die? Now I know I was being a little bit exaggerating, but there were people dying. Okay. And it was all from this one pill mill doctor who just was open late at night and just giving these pills out to even young people without any infirmity, okay, and leading them into a path of destruction. I was going to some of the funerals, okay. Wow. But the other crazy thing about this, this girl died right either either on the day or the day before or the day after that I saw the cross in the sky. I didn't find out after I got there. And then a couple of weeks later, she's buried within 20 feet of my son. Oh, my goodness. On top of that, Time Magazine comes out with an article. There's three hot spots in the country where there's OxyContin overdose deaths. My little town of St. which has never been in Time Magazine, is one of those hot spots. Wow. And I am infuriated. I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed by our parish. I'm, uh, you know, and, and I know what's going on. And it's almost like nobody else knows what's going on. And the truth is, no, a lot of people just weren't paying attention, but they weren't in the right place and they didn't have the tools. Some kind of way I had developed the tools. Although, don't get me wrong, it took me a year and a half to solve my son's murder. It would take me a year and a half to shut this doctor down. And I'm not going to go through every little detail about it, okay? But eventually, the DEA didn't want me doing this. The FBI threatened to arrest me if I continued to do this. Okay, they claimed I was interfering in that investigation. A lot of this is shown in the documentary. Yes, all the behind the scenes stories that that are so. Okay, but I continued and continued and continued. It'd be really, really interesting to to, to go into all the little sub stories, but eventually it came down to I had an altercation with the FBI, and it's because I was the. Uh, uh, I had some new information to bring to the FBI. Originally, I went to the FBI. The FBI sent me to DEA. I went to the DEA and then and wasn't happy with how they accepted this, but I was still trying to work with them, okay? I wasn't happy that the medical board hadn't responded to me in any way, shape, or form. I started, I don't know if you want to call it paranoid, I started to think everybody's in on this. Okay. Yes, Which, yes. That's when you started to, you know, when I started to watch it, I'm like, mm, this is really suspicious. Everybody is like, uh, are they all getting paid off or something? Like, that's what I was thinking. Well, guess what? I did too. And e even to this day, I do believe somebody in FBI was on the take. Mm -hmm. And I've got some anecdotal evidence of that, but we, we didn't bring it out in the uh, documentary because it's a, a factual story. And they <coughs> double-checked everything that I claim. They double-checked to make sure as best they could that it was factual and I wasn't embellishing, okay? All right. But on that particular case, the evidence that I have was anecdotal and, and, and circumstantial. And so we, may, we didn't have enough to actually accuse the FBI. We may have insinuated. Now, we have a movie that's going to be in production, and we may go a little further, okay, because we allowed to in a movie, but not in a documentary. Okay? I see. And I don't want to embellish to the point that I'm misleading people, but I really, I would leave it up to the audience after they hear some of this, and I'll give you a little bit of the backstory as to why I think they might have been dirty. So I go to DEA, I mean, FBI, they send me to DEA, 
And then all of a sudden I get some new evidence of where she might be laundering the money because she was taking a lot of cash. She wouldn't take insurance or anything. People were paying that hundred people or 200 people had out there at two o'clock in the morning. They were paying a hundred, 200 and $300. Now why were some paying 300 and some were paying 100? Because if you pay 200, you got fast service. If you pay 300, you got stat service, which means a cab could pull up and they did. A dealer could get out, go in, get the prescription, and come back out immediately. Immediate service. It's called stat. Okay. Yes, right now. Mm -hmm. they pay, but they pay $300. Somebody else who's a smaller time dealer paid 200 to get extra. And then somebody who was there, maybe because they really had some injuries and they couldn't find another doctor, and there were some people in, in, in that case, okay? They would stay there for eight hours to the sun coming before they got there. Oh, my goodness. So I had a lot of those people complaining to me. And, and those people wound up helping me solve the case. I used them. I recorded them. Oh, wow. Most of them didn't realize, but they were helping me do in this topic, okay? Because I was recording them sometime knowingly and sometime secretly I was recording them. Okay? And I'd ask them, and they were mad at the doctor. Yet they went to them because they could get their pills. They had addictions themselves, Okay. But they weren't really necessarily bad people. At least they weren't selling pills that I know of. And right. They, they, they weren't be dealing. Selling. They were using. They were using. Okay. Whereas the ones that were really getting this bulk quantities and going to multiple doctors and, and all the shenanigans and two o'clock and I'm pulling up a cab. These people were in business. They, they may have been eating some themselves, but they were mainly there to make money. They had a cottage industry going on. She was like the wholesaler. Yeah. They would get it and go out and distribute it on the doggone streets. And I put all this together in my investigatory manner, and I was able to document this and tape record. And such. So I eventually found out where she might be sending the money. Okay. One of the moles I had, who was a patient of hers, happened to go to get a passport, and he met her one of her bodyguards, who was there to get a passport for some little foreign country known for shipping money. Oh, Okay. I will never know whether she was really shipping money or that was strictly a coincidence. But at this time, when I get these kind of coincidences happening, her bodyguard, who's like her boyfriend, okay, and he's getting a passport to go to some strange little foreign country, I'm saying maybe that's where the money's going. Sure. So I call a DEA. I say, I got some new evidence for you. And they go, oh, no, no. We don't handle the money laundering. You got to go back to the FBI. <laughs> But maybe they had a point there. It's, it's different okay. the drug thing, okay? But anything. so I call up the FBI, and it's like a Friday afternoon, and I try to go in and give it to them right now because I'm I'm ready for this thing, okay? I want to get it over with, get it off my chest. And the guy says that I managed to talk to this one of the top guys in the FBI, okay? I won't mention his name right now, but any event, it may come out in the movie, or maybe they won't use his name, okay? But I talked to this guy, and he said, "Man, this is this is interesting." He says, "I am handling the FBI on on, the, on on this particular case, so you're talking to the right guy." And he says, "I want you to come in Monday morning, okay? And I'm going to let them know at the gate. Uh, you're going to come in. You're going to have to bring your ID. And I'm going to let them know at the gate so that you can get in and, and get to me." I say, "Fine." So I get up Monday morning, and while I'm on my way to the FBI headquarters, I'm getting chased by Cleggett's goons, I call them. These people, before, they have they have chased me when I'm video recording them at times. Yeah. They know me, I know them. 
Now they're behind me on the way to the FBI headquarters. Now, nobody I knew I was going to the FBI headquarters but me and the guy at the FBI. Uh-huh. They are waving How their convenient. hands. How convenient. How <laughs> convenient. So you know what I'm thinking. Yes, so of I, course. When I get to the gate, I'm held up at the gate. And believe it or not, they circling behind me, right behind the, right in front of the FBI. They circling behind me, and they waving. I think they waving a gun. Okay. Now I don't know if paranoia was it. I mean, I don't know if I was close enough to see that it was a gun, but they are definitely trying to intimidate me. And I get on the phone because I'm getting held up, and I'm trying to reach the guy that I'm talking. To say, look, man, they're gonna let me in. I got people out here chasing me, and I get this humhaw crap. Okay, so I start saying, oh shit. This guy must be in on this. Now, right or wrong, that's what's going through my head. So I leave the area, okay? Nearby is a, a college campus that I had went to college at, okay? And I knew there was security there. And I run in there, and I get chased by these people, okay? And I stay in there, and I call back FBI headquarters. And I say, look, I want to come back in. I want to be expedited, get in through the gate, okay? And I don't want to speak to Mr. Such and Such. I would speak to anybody else, but I don't want to speak to them because I think I'm speaking to the guy that's trying to do me in. That's right. I could be wrong, but I'm thinking that. So I finally get an agreement. There's a little squabble to go. I finally get an agreement that, yeah, come back in and we'll get somebody else for you to speak with. Sure enough, I go in, okay, and who's waiting for me? That guy. That guy with two of his, like, bodyguards. I say bodyguards, his underlings. Yeah. Under and I, I start saying, I don't want to speak to you. I'm going to speak to somebody else. And one of his underlings say, well, you don't trust our boss, okay? Are you insinuating? I said, I ain't insinuating nothing. I just want to speak to somebody else. Okay. Well, I got I got to hear that recorder. I'm recording some of what's going on. Good. Some of, some of this is heard in the documentary. But I don't know if you can put the pieces together as to what it is. And I really sound like kind of a nut, okay? And sometimes I wonder if I hadn't progressed into the paranoia area, whether or not I was taking things out of the context. Well, I refused to talk to him, and they eventually say, I'm sorry, you have to leave. You're not going to get what you want. you got to leave. And I asked him where I go for safety. He said, we don't care where the hell you go. And some of that, I think, is caught on the recording. In, in, in the Senate documentary. So I run back home and I go to the police station down there where I know one of the, the policemen down there. And I sit down with him and I explain what's going on. He says, Danny, Jesus Christ, I don't know what to tell you. He says, but he's, he comes up with this theory. And he says, you know what, Danny? He says, you know, it could be, you know, you know, Cluggins Goons was chasing you. Okay. It could be that they actually left your house. They were actually watching you at your house. And it was coincidental that they followed you to there. Not impossible. That's true. Okay. That's true. I had never thought about that before. Yeah. At the, moment, the heat of the moment, I didn't think about that. But some other things still didn't add up. Okay. But it kind of calmed me down a little bit. So in any event, the next day, I go to Wendy's. And I'm in a Wendy's line buying like hamburgers. And I look in my mirror. And one of those FBI agents, the underling that was protecting his boss, is in the car behind me. Oh, boy. Okay. Again, you know, 
I'm not in a paranoid state at that moment, but all of a sudden I get chills and I say, is this real? Is this really the guy? Yeah. I pull, pull over. He pulls up in front of me and I write down his license plate number. Oh, that was good. And then I leave and he follows me. And I'm going to say almost like chased me. Well, I know the area way more than he does. I go in and out some back streets and I go into this little hiding place that I'm aware of. Okay. And I hide and I see him leave. Okay. Well, then I call up the St. Bernard Parish Police Department. When I was investigating my son's case, they let me have access. I've got no cooperation with New Orleans, but my local parish officials were trying to help me solve my son's murder. They would let me use their computers with them. For instance, when, when I got the witness, we ran a record on the witness to see if she was legitimately clean. And she was pretty clean. Not perfect, but pretty clean. I ran the record on the killer. So I now told a little white lie. I call up the guy that I had. <laughs> my son's murder is over with. I call him and said, look, you know, I saw my son's murder just a couple of months ago. And now I'm being chased by these people. And I think it might be the drug dealers coming after me. And I got this license plate number and I'd like you to run it. Oh, sure. I'll run it. He runs it. Turns out it was the FBI plates. Guess what happens next? When they find out that I chased, that I got those license plates, they go to the St. Bernard Parish Police and they say, if this guy doesn't stop, we're going to arrest him. They what come for? To Interfering in their investigation. That's not going on. Well, guess what? <laughs> that was probably a bluff, but let me tell you how it happened. The two St. Bernard Police would come to my house. They asked to come in. They asked me and my wife to sit down. And they tell me, Danny, you got to stop. This is serious. This is the FBI. Okay. They are on our case for giving, running a license plate. Okay. And they are threatening to arrest you. Now, I don't know whether I believe that or not, but my wife's like crying. So for a while, I actually shut down most of my activities. Okay. I almost sort of give up. I'm almost beaten. I mean, how do you go up against the FBI? If this guy is dirty, he what can he do to me, maybe? I don't know. Yeah. Okay? And, and you know, I do all kind of things. If, 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 I, I still, but I, but I don't give up completely. But by this time, I've already quit my job, left my job. I'm out there full-time, sort of working on this, but now I'm kind of frozen and not working on this. Okay? we now spending our money existing. Okay? But any event, fate comes in again, and I'm working a relief job at another pharmacy. It's, it's you know, a, a pharmacy needed a day off, and I, I had put my name out there. If anybody needs a pharmacist for a day, I'll work. I go to work there, and a guy comes in, and he's got crutches, and he's limping, and he's got an OxyContin prescription from Dr. Cleggett, which is the pill mill doctor that we've been videotaping. Right. So I really don't want to actually... Re refuse his prescription. I don't want to make any waves. I'm in this little pharmacy for one day. I don't want to hurt this guy's business. Okay. But I started talking to this guy and I said, you know, here she's got a lot of business. He says, boy, does she have a lot of business? And he said, and he says, I'll tell you what, he says, you know, he says, I, I got serious problems. I, I know I'm kind of addicted to Oxycontin, he said. And and, and it, but but I, I don't really have much recourse. That, that's what he's telling me. He says, but he says, she's got kids coming in there that I know don't need this shit, and she's writing anything they want. 
So he's like agreeing with me or talking to me about something he doesn't know I already know. Yes. Okay. And so I'll tell this guy about now what I'm doing. And he goes, and I said, you know, I hear she's got a second office. And he says, so do I. I said, will you go investigate with me? Turns out, too, this guy is a former narcotics policeman from New Orleans. Oh, wow. Okay. And he's done some work. But now he's sort of an addict himself. He's sitting in the background. Believe it or not, she knows. And she lets him have his prescriptions cheap or free. She thinks she's not going to rat her out, which he really isn't really necessarily riding out, but he starts investigating. It winds up, we run into an event while we're investigating this, looking for the second office, that we managed to see Dr. Cleggett, the pill mill doctor, along with a black politician that is very popular out there. And we see that they're working together. Holy Moses. that they're working together, I run into the FBI agent at the same place. And I don't know whether he's involved with them or he's there to investigate them. Right. The plot thickens. Okay. My God. I, I suspect he's actually in cahoots with them, but I'm not sure. So the guy I'm with has some friends on the New Orleans Police Department. So they actually look into it and they find out that there's a task force where the FBI is working together and they, they call the FBI, and the FBI says, no, we were there investigating, and we saw Dan, but Dan was investigating us, who we were investigating them. So, again, very possible. Of course, if it's the FBI guy that told him that, and he's in cahoots, you think he's going to say, yeah, I was there working with him? So there's still this question mark, okay? But something unique happens. And this is, this is another bizarre part of this story, okay? A lot of bizarre parts. He then tells the, the cop, he says, but look, tell Dan, he knows me now. He says, tell Dan to hold off, okay? Because we are ready to come down on that, okay? And in fact, that black politician, he's running for office, which I knew he was running for office. Oh. In that area, and we're going to come down on him right after the election. The election was like maybe 30 days away or 60 days away. I can't remember. So I basically sort of stopped my operations. I don't, I, me and the other guy talk about my options. I sent another letter to the medical board explaining as much as I can, hoping that maybe I can get them to pick up on the case. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I wait for this black politician. Well, he loses the election. Well, that was good. Now, now yeah, it is good. Now I'm waiting for them to come down. Doesn't happen. 30 days go by, 60 days go by. I am completely demoralized. I'm afraid to go forward because I'm fighting the FBI. I think they're in cahoots. They tell me to hold off. I hold off. They say they're going to move. They don't move. Okay. And so, believe it or not, I go back to my boss and say, I'd like to get my job back. Okay. I actually got to cut a little compromise deal with him. Okay. And he's not telling me I got to fill every Oxycontin prescriptions, but he says you got to stop investigating, at least not in my store. Okay. And I promised him I would stop investigating. I reneged a little bit on that. <laughs> but I did try to adhere to that. And I did much less investigating. But guess what happens? Out of godsend, I get a call about a month or so later from the medical board. Dan, you wrote this letter six months ago. Do you still agree with this? I said, absolutely. 
Are you willing to proceed forward? Okay, because we've been waiting on the DEA and FBI, and they're not doing, they're not stopping this. And we've been waiting. They've been telling us to wait that they're going to. And that's what they've been telling me the same damn thing. So they were getting the same words from the DEA and the FBI, and they were holding off and trying to shut her down because they wanted them, they wanted to give the FBI and the DEA a chance to make the case they wanted to make and actually criminally prosecute her. The medical board couldn't criminally prosecute. The only thing they could do is take a license away, but that, that would stop her from killing people. Yeah, exactly. So I met with the uh, prosecutor for the medical board, okay? And it is shown in the documentary, and if you watch even the little trailer, I gave them a lot of information. They had a strong case, but the medical board was still not sure they had a 100% enclad case, and they wanted what they called a smoking gun. Okay. And, and I didn't even know what the smoking gun was. But now that I'm working back in the drugstore, made a few compromises, filling some of the prescriptions that are even questionable, okay? If they're really bad, I turn them down, okay? I'm not doing much investigating, or very little. I'm tr trying to honor my promise to my boss, okay? A young girl comes in, skipping into the store, okay? Now, how does this happen? I don't know, okay? Her heavyweight mother comes in behind her, she plops down prescriptions from the pill mill doctor, Dr. Cleggett, okay, that we've been talking about, okay? And they, for Oxycontin, 80 milligrams, take one or two, three times a day, okay? Uh, hydrocodone, Valium, uh, Soma, uh, Oxycontin for breakthrough pain. I mean, about six prescriptions, all of which, if she took them as direction, I believe would kill her. Mm -hmm. Which all of a sudden hits me in the head. One of the reasons why they usually can't come down on these doctors that are really pill mill doctors, I'm wrong, they, if they're a doctor that is trying to work with the patient, that's another story. But if you open up at two o'clock in the morning, you got a hundred people and you're charging 300 for somebody to come in from a cab and you hand them a prescription, that ain't a real doctor. Okay? No. That is a wholesale uh, uh, drug dealer in a white coat. That's okay? right. But they still pretend to be doctors. And they do usually write prescriptions that if you take them precisely as directed, they don't kill you. Okay. And so they have trouble, and I'm going to be a little bit supportive of the authorities now. They're a little bit afraid to make a case because the doctor can always claim it ain't my fault. That person took three times as much as he did, or they went to three different doctors. Okay. And they can always pawn the risk off on somebody else and maybe escape being shut down. Sure. Sure. But I got a case now. But she's written a prescription for a young girl who only weighs 100 pounds. Now, how does that happen to come into my store? It's not just that. It's the fact that she's got like five of them. I agree. But my point is to you now is if she went to any other drugstore, maybe the pharmacist would look down and ram off. Right. Maybe the pharmacist would have filled them, make a lot of money filling prescriptions. Okay. But very few of them would have taken the pains or been in a position to say, Wait a second. This is what I need. This is a miracle. Okay. But you know what? I'm also pretty sharp. Even though I'm not supposed to investigate, the mother wants the prescriptions back because I'm not going to fill them. Uh-huh. I, I copy all the prescriptions. Okay. I give them back. I also get some information from her. She, she's trying to justify me filling them. She says, but she got these prescriptions. She got sickle cell. Sickle cell can be pretty severe pain. Yes. And the doctor in a hospital used to give them medications like this. Well, I, I doubt that. But in any event, I call the doctor. After she leaves, I call the doctor. And I pretend I'm thinking about filling these prescriptions. And I tell the doctor about it that had treated her in a hospital. 
oh my God, he says, that'll kill him. And I said, are you willing to go to medical board me? No. <laughs> well, that always happens. Nobody wants to stick their neck out. Yeah. Everybody wants the problem, which is one of my messages is, there are times you got to stick out and take a little risk. Maybe not as crazy as I did, okay? And some of that is a little too dangerous. But there's a lot of times people turn their head the other way and they know something's not right. And one of the messages I want to deliver is not only, boy, shut down pill mill doctors or let's work on the drug problem, okay? There's other things in life too that we turn our head away from. So I, I hope my story motivates people to stand up, take some action, do the right thing, okay? So in any event now, I know this doctor's pretty sly. In fact, I also know she ain't going to take my call because she don't take my call anymore. I used to talk to her occasionally. I tried to persuade her naively thinking maybe I can convince her to do the right thing. Okay. Mm -hmm. No longer could. Now she's got goons chasing me and everything else. Okay. So I don't think she's going to return my call, but I got to try because I know in a minute she's going to say she didn't write the prescriptions. Of course. She can pawn that off. And truthfully, she didn't write all the prescriptions. She had her nurse pre-write the prescriptions. She just handed them out. Wow. Okay, so any event, I get on the, phone, on the phone and I call. She don't call for a day. I don't think she's going to call. Out of the blue, she calls and I'm on. I say, Dr. Cleggett, did you write these prescriptions for this young girl, these five or six prescriptions? You effing right, I did. And I said, well, doctor, you realize that as prescribed, these drugs would probably kill this girl. Who made you an effing doctor? We notated all that. We sent it to the medical board. Within three days, all the, the DEA and the FBI all come in and claim they shut it down. Love it. Love it. No. And anybody who wants to know a little more about the story in print, Go to NOLA.com, N-O-L-A, which is New Orleans, Louisiana.com. The original story was titled Justice for Danny, okay? And it's that story that exploded, and eventually Netflix picked this story up and made a documentary. And that's the same story right now that two weeks ago we were in Los Angeles talking to the producer and the director of the movie, The Pharmacist, that's in the works. That's wonderful. And so, so it's a great story, but let me tell you, it just doesn't end exactly there either, okay? Yeah, I shut this pill mill, doctor, but then I realized, okay, these people had to go somewhere, okay? I tried to get some of them on these new medicines called medicines for opiate use disorder. I got a few on. I had a few successes. A lot of them didn't. Some of them went to other doctors. Fortunately, some of them wound up quitting. That They got harder for them to get their prescription. Some of them may have suffered. Some of them might have went to heroin. There was some good and bad that happened when this happened, Okay. There were other pill mill doctors that sprung up to try to take in the business that this doctor left. So I also realized we had another problem. I had found out in other states they had something called the pharmacy monitoring program. Okay. And I kind of researched that pharmacy monitoring program. And I found out that, it, that there was a way to prevent them from going from multiple doctors. The pharmacist would know. Yes. So I approached my medical, my pharmacy board and asked them to create a pharmacy monitoring program. Initially, I got resistance from them. And I asked, I had a friend that I graduated from high school that was on the board, but he was a new member on the board. And he said, Danny says, says, I can't put my name on it. I says, let me tell you, there's a lot of resistance to this because a lot of these pharmacists, they don't want to know it's filled someplace else. Because if they know it's filled someplace else, then they got to turn it down. 
and they turn it down, they might be turning out a lot of profit. And he was honest about the fact that there are some greedy pharmacies out there that really didn't care. Sure. Okay. And, 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 and so in any event, what I had to do then was I had to get a lot of evidence together. And I wrote a letter to the medical board about how many people had died and how I felt that in some cases, if our pharmacy board didn't act and some kid died, that the parents were going to sue our board for not getting the latest in technology to prevent this from happening. The minute I threatened them with lawsuits from parents of kids that died, they took it up, and within months, they started the pharmacy monitoring program in Louisiana. Wow. Eventually, that would extend to many, many states, and it has greatly reduced doctor shopping, as they call them, going to yes. multiple pharmacies, okay? And so, uh, now, next thing, though, that ain't enough. I see OxyContin, and I see Purdue Pharma. And I know they're selling BS. And there are doctors out there. Some become pill mill doctors, and it's all about money. But some actually believe this stuff works. And, and it's the, it maybe it's the right thing to do. Some pharmacists believe it's the right thing to do. Okay, And I'm not saying in some rare instances it isn't the right thing to do. It, it, it can be, especially end of life, or they're up in age, or, and they, they've tried a multiple uh, other types of treatment. Right. But when you talk about an 18-year-old that has an arm busted or something, and they all of a sudden taking high-powered opiates, we, we know this is wrong, okay? So I reach out to Purdue, and I try to talk to them about what they can do to reduce this problem. They say, <laughs> what? They say what problem? Well, I mean, I know now that they they in cahoots with this damn thing. Oh, they know what the hell's going on. They don't give a damn. Now, I will I say this. I had a lot of success along the way. I managed to solve my son's murder. I managed to solve, put, put this pill mill doctor. I put a few other pill mill doctors down before I decided to hang it up on investigations. Okay, The other ones were much easier than the first one. Okay, I now had clout. The medical board listened to me. Prior, prior to that, they were even skeptical of me. Okay, uh, <laughs> but, but I had to move on and start talking in schools and, and doing my other mission and going after the real villain, Purdue Pharma. Unfortunately, I was not very successful. They were so big and so strong that Ed Bish tried, I tried, and there were other people around the country that tried. And one thing that we now know, today, we might have been able to curtail them because we would have knew each other. Because we didn't have, I didn't know Ed Bish was working up in New Jersey. I didn't know there was a doctor over in Tennessee working. I now know we have a network now that know that, okay? Now, the, the problem is now we have curtailed the prescription problem, but we have a fentanyl problem. We have a lot of people that are addicted now and they're taking drugs that actually, much as I hate to admit it, that are even more dangerous than OxyContin. Because at least OxyContin, if you take what's prescribed, you're not going to die. If you even cheat and take double what's prescribed, you're probably not going to die. But with fentanyl, okay, you can die the first time you take it. It's so potent. Mm -hmm. And if you have to survive the first time, if you take just a little bit more, not a lot more, you ain't got to take three times as much. You ain't even got to take twice as much. You take one and a half times as much and you die. And that's why we got this great surge in deaths. <clears throat> and I now have been searching for a solution to that because one of my biggest frustrations, okay, in this is when the documentary came out, I got a stack of letters this thick, okay, thousands from around the world. That, that thing has been shown to 140 million people in 62 countries. I've got so many people that have said, you've saved lives. You, uh, you're a hero. 
they, they go on and on and on and on and on. And, and, and I, I, I appreciate that. But also, since my documentary showed, okay, we've went from like 70,000 overdose deaths to 110,000. So if that's not my fault. And, and, and maybe if I and Ed Bish and some other people in the country hadn't been fighting this battle, maybe it would be worse. I hope to think that we had some impact. Yes. But it's even worth the effort. Eventually, if we keep working at this thing, you know, six months into my son's murder, I didn't think I was going to solve the case. There was points in time where I almost gave up putting this doctor out of business. Okay? So it's not over yet. And we're still working. And I want to read something to you that was a gift that, that I had that's quite interesting. in such disarray. I'll have to wing this because I'm not seeing it right now. But talk about chance and talk about circumstances and whether God's involved. Okay, there's a lot of instances in this this where I was ready to give up and quit and prayed and then I got a breakthrough. Okay. Something also happened after the documentary broke. That's a strange coincidence at the very least. Okay. I I was unknown. Okay, now a guy like Ed Bish, he's starting to be known now, but he still doesn't have the kind of publicity that I have. Okay, yet I will say this he's probably done as much as I've done, maybe even more. Now, I didn't solve his son's murder. Okay, his son overdosed and died. Okay, um, taking an Oxycontin pill. Okay, or maybe two. Okay, but Ed's been a warrior. There's a lot of warriors like Ed that are what, what I call unsung heroes. Yes. I feel a little guilt every now and then because, for one thing, I was an unsung hero. I did all the work that I did way before the public knew it, okay? Yes. So I was just as good then, but nobody knew me. Nobody paid any attention to me. Nobody said, thank you. I didn't get letters of commendations and all this kind of stuff, any kind of accolades, okay? I get on TV, and I get a show, of course, they, the reason why I got a show is because the story is so powerful, okay? And there's so many yes. elements to it, okay? And so, but any event, I have a a, a, a little bit of a, of, of a guilt factor. But any event, the other thing that happens is the documentary breaks right when COVID is breaking. Yes. Me and my wife go, oh, God, what a time for this thing to come out. Well, we didn't realize it. It was a blessing in disguise. Yes, because everybody's home and they're watching these things. Exactly. So I, I think it would have been a success, but it was an immense success. <laughs> yes. It rose to, to number two. It never quite got to number one. Okay. But it was number two for a long, long time. It's all time best documentary and whatnot. Okay. Guess what beat it? Tiger King. Oh that my! story about the tiger guy, which which was a bullshit story, but yeah. it was like a wreck, and people wanted to see it. Okay, so if I had to lose to something, I guess I'd lose to that. But you know what was great about our story? Many people told me this. Okay, my story had meat to it, real education to it, real awareness to it that might save the life. So your story is number one in my heart. Many people told me that. Okay, so any of that, it's crazy, but I had never had attorneys before, entertainment attorneys. But when I signed up with Netflix, I needed an attorney. 
Mm-hmm. I reached out to a local entertainment attorney. I tried to get the high dollar ones. None of them would even call me back. I probably couldn't afford them anyway. <laughs> uh, I found this a lady uh, that, that is in the French Quarter. She's kind of a liberal lady, you might say, okay? Her family owns House of Blues down here, which is a, a jazz joint, okay, in bar, okay? But in any event, I tell her my story, and she's well, yeah, I'll, I'll represent you. And she does it, not free, but she does it reasonable. And you can tell her heart's in the story, okay? Mm-hmm. And so shortly after, much as I hate to admit this, though, I only had one or two meetings with her. And the documentary doesn't occur for like another six months or a year, okay? Well, when it comes out, and I'm starting to hear that it's a big deal, you know, we didn't know it would explode the way it did, okay? And I'm getting comments from all over the country and whatnot. <clears throat> Me and my wife are laying in bed, and the phone rings. And it's this lady. Now, I don't recognize her. She's rambling on. She says, Dan, I can't believe that story. She said, man, my husband works in New York and people are talking about it. They're, they're cool. And I got some friends in California calling me. Do I know this guy? And she's, yeah, I know this guy. I represent him. Okay. And, <coughs> and she said, this is just phenomenal. And I'm, and I'm thinking to myself, who is this lady? I, I, I can't place her. I'm, I'm <laughs> and I said, pardon me, ma'am. Refresh me. I, I'm sorry, but you know, I'm half asleep. But uh, who are you? I'm the attorney. <laughs> she's that. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. She's that. Yeah, but look, she said, I really didn't just call you to tell you about how great the show is. Okay. You probably know that. I got something better than that. I said, what's that? She said, I just signed Miss America. And I Who? Said, I just signed Miss America. I'm representing Miss America. How nice. Now, hang on. I say, I said, so? Yeah. <laughs> How does that affect me? She said, she said, she's a pharmacy student. <gasps> Her platform is the same platform as you. Oh. Now, now how, how does this happen that way? The girl's name, and you can look it up, 2020, Camille Schreier, Miss America. She comes from Virginia. She became Miss Virginia because she's at pharmacy school in Virginia. She lives in Pennsylvania. Her mama seeks out an attorney. She happens to seek out this attorney in New Orleans. I have no idea why she signs the attorney that I have signed. How wonderful. They put me and Miss America together and we tore the country. <gasps> oh, how wonderful. What I, what, I wanted, what I wanted to show you is Miss America gave me a booklet. And for some the life of me, I had it out here somewhere. And now I can't locate the daggone thing. And uh, you can see her picture in the background back here. I'll give you, I'll show you this, but uh, I don't know right now at the moment where that doggone book is, but I'm going to tell you a little something that keeps me my motor running. This is. Oh, how nice. Me and Miss America 2020. Okay. Aww. You know, I wound up, uh, we, we go to certain events around the country. We talk together. I want to bring it to New Orleans and we, we, we not only speak, but we vacation here together. Then I go to, to Pennsylvania, her hometown. We speak together. We do Norcan training, which is the drug that reverses overdose deaths. We do some work together. But I also get to meet her and her family. I go fishing in a pond that's on her thing. Oh. I think when, I go, when I go to Pennsylvania now, I call up Camille, Miss America, and I say, well, Camille, I'm at the airport. I need your address to give to this Uber driver because she's, oh, she, you know, 
we live about an hour or so away. She said, Uber driver is going to cost, cost you probably a hundred bucks. She says, I'll come get you. That's all um, you don't have to do that, Camille. I'm now in the airport waiting for Miss America to pick me up. And sure enough, she picks up and brings me back to her hometown. It's an incredible story, but it leads to what she told me. And I got to wish I had that book to show you, but there's a book she put together after. This girl's really got a crap together, more so than I'm a scatterbrain, really. You know, I'm a Columbo of investigators, okay? <laughs> uh, you know, uh, uh, you you might be at the age that you know who Columbo was. I don't know. Yes, 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 I do. He was a stumble-born investigator, but he managed to solve cases, okay? And that's kind of like what I've been like. So anyway, me and her from time to time have coffee. She loves coffee. I love coffee. And we sit down every now and then. We talk about our frailties. You know, she talks about, yeah, I'm glad I'm Miss America. It's a dream come true. But she feels like she's maybe not quite deserving. Or, or she can't do enough, okay? And I, and I feel the same way. Okay? And so we share this anxiety amongst ourselves, even though we know we're trying to do good things, okay? And I keep telling her, you know, Jesus, Camille, you know, everybody brags on me and they try to make me feel good and all that, but all I've seen is overdose deaths go up. And they were going up too while she was Miss America, so she could relate to that, okay? So she writes, she signs in the front of the book, she gives me a book of all the pictures of us together and all the events that we did. Aww. And she signs in the beginning, and she uses my words. She says, Dan, she says, I appreciated every moment we had, all the events together. I hope we have more together in the future. And I want to let you know, she said, I believe that you are going to be able to move the needle. My phrase was, I didn't move the needle down on Did we disconnect maybe? Run out of time? No, nope, we just froze so, for a sec. So she she writes in there, you're going to do this. You know what drives me now? I want to move the needle. And I'll, 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 I'll kind of wrap up a little bit here with what I'm trying to do now. I studied the problem. I had many years ago tried MOUD, which is Medicines for Opiate Use Disorder, drugs like Suboxone, Buprenorphine, Sublocade, drugs that you take that they actually pseudo- opioids themselves or partial opioids okay and believe it or not the person gets used to taking that drug and it's hard to get off of that okay but it's a drug that doesn't cause a high it does have some effect on pain although it's not great for severe pain mm -hmm. but it also doesn't cause the patient to want more and more and more it has what they call a ceiling effect you can take more you don't get more high you also can take two or three times the amount and it don't kill you okay? well that's good Where, the drugs that these people want always demand more to get the same measure. And also while they're doing that, they reduce in depression, respiratory depression. And so they, as they take more and more, eventually they take too much and they die. And that's why we're getting the severe dosage. And with fentanyl being so potent, more and more are dying right now with just small increases in their dose. So if I can get them onto these medicines, even though it's, I'm, I'm going to consider it a midway gap, okay? If I can get them on these medicines, it's a bridge to maybe eventually them getting off. You mentioned earlier homeopathic, and, and some people talk about psychedelics. There may be other things that can help these people get off, but we got to do something to reduce the deaths. We got to do something to move the needle. So I'm now advocating for MOUD, which is Medicines for Opiate Use Disorder, drugs like Subocade. And let me tell you, it's a shame, but there's a stigma associated with them now. I helped create that stigma. Inadvertently, I did because I don't like big pharma. 
Okay, and and uh, uh, unfortunately, these medicines for opiate use disorder that I'm talking about are produced by big pharma. So if we get more people on there, big pharma is going to make more money. Ugh. But it this time, instead of causing people to die, I believe it's going to reduce those that die, and it's going to put these people in a position where they can think clearly. Right, and when they can think clearly, they may be able to be drugs like homeopathic drugs or, or psychedelics or, or, or counseling and treatment or whatnot, they may eventually be able to get completely off. In the meantime, they can function on these drugs. They can work. They can go to school. They can raise their kids. Okay. Wow. So that's been, good. And so I've been searching for a way and that's what I'm working on now. And I got Miss America's blessings on this. She thinks I can do it. I'm beginning to think I can do it. And I can tell you if I can't, I'll die trying. Okay. And so that's, you know, there's a whole bunch of other parts to the story. And if you've got any questions that I can fill in something, I'd be glad to do it. But that kind of runs a lot of the gamut of what I've done with my life. And to answer another question that you maybe asked early is this has all helped me in the grieving process. I, I now, but many times I carry my son's picture with me. And when I speak in local high schools, like I just spoke last week at, at a high school, I bring this picture and I say, you know, I want audience, look, you got this 73-year-old man out here now that you young people are going to think I'm preaching at you, okay? <laughs> I've been there before. My son was there before. And we all think we're preaching. And maybe to some extent I am. But what I want you to think is now, this is not coming from me. And I tell him the story about my son want, wanted me to do something to discourage kids from doing drugs that he had thought he could control this, that he thought sharing with his friends would save him. Right. Okay? That he thought he could some kind of way handle this himself and that he really didn't want to do it, but his brain got out of control. And that can happen to anybody. I make right. him think, I said, so think that you're not hearing this from this 73-year-old guy. You're hearing this from this 22-year-old man that went through what you might be going to go through if you don't listen. Okay. And so, I hope it reaches them. I do anything to reach them as best we can. You don't reach them all, but if you save some and we spread the message that too, watch out for your friends. Make sure, try to stay away from drugs yourself. Okay. Yeah. One pill, one dose can kill. Okay. It's extremely potent. People will fake these drugs in. You don't even know what you're taking anymore. It can be laced in anything. I, I educate them on that. And, 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 and I say, the other thing is, Maybe you keep yourself off of these drugs. Maybe you hear my message. Some of your friends ain't going to hear it. And you may not be doing drugs yourself, but you're probably going to want them knowing who might be doing it. And what you have to do is you have to interject. If you want to approach them and have a conversation with them and hope you can help them, that's fine. If you don't want to and you don't want to get the stigma of it, anonymously send a note to their parents. Anonymously send a note to the principal or the teacher or something. Right. And look, Rest assured, unlike in the past, 20 years ago, I will say this. 20 years ago, if you reported a kid, somebody might really come down on them, okay? okay. They, they may get some punishment. They may, I don't even know, maybe in some instances, uh, the police would look at them, and if they, if they were caught buying a drug or something, maybe they'd even go to jail, okay? Well, guess what? That's really not happening too much anymore. People no. finally realize this is a big, big problem. Most people don't go to jail. Most parents are a little bit aware of this. If they get this kind of note, they're going to handle it. 
with some degree of discretion. In most cases, they are. So it's out of your hands when you hand it to that parent, but don't think that you're going to maybe destroy this kid. You just might be saving his life. Yes. My friends still regret, still regret, Danny's friends still regret that they didn't drop a note in my mailbox. And I'll give you one other phrase that I think everybody ought to hear this, even though I sort of regret saying it. Shortly after my son's murder and his funeral, at his funeral, some of his friends came to me and they wanted to be pallbearers. And I actually thought about it, okay? Some of his friends carrying his coffin. And they were good friends, okay? But at the time, I had some family members. And I didn't want one of the kids to be involved. And I remembered one of the kids that had come to me and said, look, Danny's smoking pot, and I don't care if he smokes a joint. But I think he's doing a little too much, Danny. And it might be good. And he warned me. And I confronted my son and we thought we dealt with the issue, okay? I remembered that kid. And we happen to have a sixth spot. It takes six people to carry the coffee, okay? And so he filled the sixth spot along with family members. Well, when I have a meeting after the funeral with some of Danny's friends, and they admit that Danny had reached out and tried not to do this drug and whatnot, one of them knows says, Mr. Danny, why didn't you let us carry his coffee? And I said, because you guys carried his coffin before he died. Now, that was really tough. Okay. And I, I have since forgave them. They have forgiven me. I admitted I probably went too far, but I was a grieving father. I was very frustrated when I found out they knew and I didn't know. Okay. And I will say this, they agree with me now. They were wrong. But I asked them to forgive themselves. Danny would want them to forgive themselves. But by, by the way, my son would have did the same thing they did. He would not have reported them. But we got to try to change that mentality. Yes, and they, they are on board with me changing that mentality. And if we could ever get, if we want to make a dent in this problem, okay, we need help more than just the authorities. Okay, We need kids not only to not do drugs, but we need kids to talk about the ones that are doing drugs to be peers, to talk to their friends. And if their friends don't listen, to report them to somebody above that might better step in and not punish, but help them. Yes. If somebody would have reported that, I, I got to admit, I probably got a little bit angry at my son, but I was at the stage where I was already becoming a little aware that there was something going on. And right. if I got that note, there would have been some degree of anger, but it would have been very controlled. And I said, Danny, you know, you're dealing with a drug that's very potent. You know, it, it's something you just about can't stop yourself. You, you're going to need help, counseling, some kind of rehab or something like that. And I know to this day, Danny was fearful of that. Danny was fearful that I did find out he would go into rehab. But I'd much rather have been embarrassed about rehab and alive. And it would have been embarrassing to our family for him to go and read. I was a pharmacist. It was embarrassing for me to have a son that got involved in drug use. Okay, Sure. But he would be alive today. And we got to think about, and we, and we now know it can happen to anybody. Okay? These drugs are designed. They're malicious. You know, if, if you want to believe in heaven and hell or Satan and God, okay, they, they are almost designed to take over your brain. Mm -hmm. Do formal lied and lied and lied. Let me give you another example. I can go on and on and on. We'll probably have to wrap up. But the truth is, I found out something recently about Purdue Forma that really, really tells a tale on them. 
And there's been a lot of tales that have been told on there. There's been a lot of stuff. It's like peeling back an onion. Mm-hmm. But I discovered this recently at a meeting before the DOJ where we were protesting, trying to get the Sacklers uh, uh, criminally prosecuted with Ed Bish. Okay. Shortly before that protest meeting, I read an article about Purdue Pharma. And I didn't know it at the time. I haven't known about it. But there were uh, three or four states in the country that had those pharmacy monitoring programs. They had already started doing that. And there were three or four states around the country at that time, okay, that they had something called triple prescriptions. It made it a lot harder for people to abuse their prescriptions or get prescriptions by more than one place, okay? So there was some resistance in these three states where all the other states were just kind of open game. Guess what Purdue did? They looked at those streets and said, we ain't touching them. We ain't spending a nickel there. They spent no money in those states marketing their drugs. They sent none of their salesmen there to market their drugs. Now, they were supposed to be trying to save people from pain. Now, they had as many pain people in that state as they did in all the other states. So if they were really about that, they would have tried to push those drugs in those states. But they knew that there was a lot of diversion going on. They knew there was a lot of abuse going on. And they loved the abuse because the more abuse happened and the more diversion of drugs happened, the more sales they had, the more money they made, okay? So they didn't spend money there. Now, this is the interesting part of this. Those states had less overdose deaths. Obviously. Not just then. (laughs) Not just then. Today, less people die from fentanyl in those states. Oh, interesting. Very interesting, because there are some people who say, Jesus, you made it tough on the prescriptions. That's why more people are dying. And I'm not saying there isn't a little bit of that that's somewhat true. Okay, mm-hmm. That wasn't the main reason. Most people went to heroin because it was cheap. Okay, And most people went to heroin because it was maybe a little bit better high. Okay, And now fentanyl has replaced heroin. Okay, But what happened is Purdue created the addiction. And these people need something now. And the only thing available to them is what's on the street. But I can tell you right now, if we reversed it and made it easy for them to get their prescriptions, they wouldn't go back to prescription opioids. They don't give them the same kind of feeling that fentanyl does. They probably wouldn't even reduce their their withdrawals. These drugs are so potent now that those drugs no longer work. So they're not going to go back. And the evidence is where Purdue created the addiction, that's where the people are, are, are dying. Where Purdue didn't market, less people are dying even today. Which states are they? Do you remember? I don't, I don't have the exact states. You know, it might have that Ed Bish. And I can get that for you. Okay, so I, I will try to look that up. But there were a few states that did it. And it was an interesting thing when I read that. I said, my God, this is, this is further proof of their malicious intent. Uh, you know, because they, they claim, well, we're just trying to solve the pain problem. That's oh, un- yes, of course. But what but really it, took, really got me was when they were telling all the doctors this, that it's only 1% addictive. Right. And, and, and that you, you doesn't know that, make any, that doesn't make any sense. You know the details of the story on that too, don't you? Say that again? Do you know how they got this 1% thing? No. The way they got it, if you watch some of the stories, I think it comes out of either dope shack or in painkiller. Okay, it doesn't come out in my documentary. Okay, but what Purdue did was they happened to find some little study, I think, in a foreign country, where some doctor in a hospital with twenty patients that were on 
opioids. And in the hospital, very well controlled, there was only like 1% of those people that left with addiction. Okay. Okay. But remember now, that's not the same thing as a doctor handing out a prescription for uh, an elbow and giving them month after month after month with no control, meaning when one pill didn't work, they take two pills. When two pills don't work, they take four pills. So it was extremely misleading for them to use that stupid study, which didn't relate to the outside marketplace with prescriptions. But they used that study, and guess who approved that study being used? The FDA. FDA. And we now know the FDA, the guy that approved this, okay, was hired a year later, and his salary went from 50000 with the FDA to 300000 with Purdue Pharma. <laughs> It is so rotten, it stinks. Yeah. On top of all that, I found out that they didn't spend any money in the states where they had some resistance. If there's any doubt whatsoever, and we now know that they have less fentanyl deaths. If Purdue would have never did this, we wouldn't have this amount of fentanyl deaths. Okay. Now there would be some. Yeah. You're never gonna, you're never gonna stop the overdose deaths. And I I have to say this right now. One of my goals is moving the needle. Me and Miss America came down to let's move the needle. Okay. I would love it if I could cut overdose deaths in half. And that would still mean it's so bad now, there's 110,000 a year. That would mean 55,000 overdose deaths. Let me tell you, when I started working on this in 1999, when my son was murdered, we had 16,000 overdose deaths. Mm. I thought that was ridiculous. I called it the opioid epidemic. One of the reasons why I got a show is because I called it the opioid epidemic when they had 16,000 deaths. It it had to get to 70,000 deaths before they called it the opioid epidemic. And that just happened, I think, four years ago. Right. Okay. Okay. I was saying it 20 years ago. Okay. And it, I almost feel bad about this now, but if I could get it to 55, I would probably go and have a steak dinner. 50, we would still have 55,000 people dying, okay? But, you know, we would be, let's not look at those that die. Let's look at the 55,000 that don't lose their kids. Let's right. look at the 55,000 that don't get the knock on the door. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that's what we have to work on. If we can get to zero or we can get it even further down, fine. But let's first make a dent in the problem. Okay. I'm working on that. And I commend you. I commend you. And I thank you for being here and for sharing everything you did and for doing everything that you did. And you should be, you should be so proud because I know a small piece of what it's like to become a detective when you never thought you would have to be. And I, right. And you know, that's what I consider myself. I consider myself, I became a detective. You're right. You sure did. And, and and you are now using that in a sense to try to teach others and motivate others to do the same thing. Okay. That's a good thing. That's part of what I do. But I have focused on something that I have knowledge in. And so I have focused on the drug problem and, and trying to find a way to solve that. Okay. Yeah. But it's the same kind of energy. I have some tools and some gifts now that I didn't have. Yeah. Okay. It's true. Uh, you know, I don't 
like to think that it was fate that my son died. You know, some people that are really into God say, well, maybe God took your son so that you could save others. If he did, I ain't happy about that. Okay, I don't so really believe that, but I have to, but I was like you, I was always like, why did you do this? I mean, like, what's the purpose? I will say this though. I do believe God can step in and say, okay, well, you lost your son. That was free will. Okay. Whatever you want to call it, it happened. Okay. But I can help you accomplish something. If you will go to work, I will work with you. Right. And, I want to that. and, and I've had instances where I almost can't even when I don't want to believe, even when I'm trying to be skeptical of myself, I cannot explain it. Yes. I can't explain the, the cross in the sky. I, I, I can't believe, I can't explain the last phone call I make on the list. Okay. And the girl says, yeah, I saw it all. And then I can get her to come forward. I, I, I can't, I, I, I can't, I, I cannot explain that. Okay. And, and I, I choose to believe it's divine. Okay. Absolutely. It's America agreed with that so thank it's been you a great, it's been it's been great and and i, I also want to remind everybody too that the, the, the black girl with three kids four kids okay that stepped forward to solve my son's murder shane 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 she she is the real sort of hero in this even more than me okay and what I mean by that is, no, she didn't go on with me on all my other missions after. But let me tell you, every time I wanted to quit or every time I got a little afraid of the risk, I thought about what she did and the risk she took. And it motivated me to keep going. It motivated me to keep going. And it still does that today. So I'm going to say this right now. If she wouldn't have stepped forward, my son's killer would have stayed on the street. He might have killed somebody else, and I probably would have never went on a mission. Yeah. I hope I would have. Maybe I would have after some recovery period or something, but I'm not so sure I would have. It gave me the belief and the determination to fulfill God's mission for me and my son's desire to discourage kids from doing drugs. Wow. Well, thank you, Dan, so much. Yeah, and let's get everybody out there for that uh, Supreme Court meeting. Okay? Yes, on December 4th, first thing in the morning. I'm going to send it out on all my social media. And yep. hats, off, hats off to Ed. I will tell you this. I, I've done a lot of things more than what Ed has done. But he's done a heck of a lot of things more than what I've done. And as far yep. as going, going after the sacklers, I've almost given up on that. I hate to say it. I, I never give up totally. But I, I've had other things that I thought, I had a better chance at. Yeah. Okay. And 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 he wants the sacrifice. And I hope and pray we get him. And it's not yep. about just revenge. It's not just about revenge. It's the same story. Okay. Yeah, I don't think they'll ever be able to do this again, even if we don't criminally prosecute them. But there's somebody else out that's watching what's going on. And there eventually will be somebody else that says, Well, they got by with it. They got by with a slap on the wrist and a fine. Okay. And they made a ton of money, which they still have, okay? And so why don't we go ahead and do that? And so we, 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 have, to, we have to try to end this, okay? And ending this would be one of them. This the symbolism of one of them. And the guy that would probably go to jail is Sackler. He's in his 70s now, okay? And so, you know, you're not – he don't have much life left, okay? But it's the symbolism. That's right. That, 
you a leader of a company and, and you're doing something, particularly they, there's no doubt that they knew what they were doing. Okay. Maybe not in the very beginning, maybe not. Okay. But they soon to come to know it and they fought it tooth and nail to keep it going. Absolutely. So I'm encouraging all our audience who's listening to us to please, if you're in the vicinity of DC on December 4th, it's a Monday, to please go in front of the Supreme Court and join with other people who are trying to bring justice, bring justice for all the lives that were lost because of this oxycodone pill, oxycontin. And I mean, it's the kind of thing where someone would just take one and they could die. And nowadays they're being made in, made with fentanyl, laced with fentanyl. And people think they're taking an oxycodone or an oxycontin and it's not. It's laced with fentanyl and it kills instantly, whether you take a half a pill or you take a whole pill. And so I ask you to please do that if you're in the vicinity. And thank you again, Dan, so much for your time today. I really enjoyed our conversation. I'm so grateful to know you and bless the feeling you. Is, the feeling is absolutely neutral and have a happy Thanksgiving. Same to you. God bless. God bless. Bye. Thank you.